grace, mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Welcome to a sermon podcast from Salem Lutheran Church. For more information, please stay tuned at the end of the sermon. Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. 
Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. When Jesus had finished praying and they had sung a hymn, he went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Today, yes, tonight, before the, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was an olive grove, a place called Gethsemane. Jesus and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. On reaching the place, Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Pray that you, so that you will not fall into temptation. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him, and began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He withdrew about a stone's throw, knelt down and fell on the ground, and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Not my will, but yours be done. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray, so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Returning to the disciples the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us.
us go, here comes my betrayer. This is the word of our God. Grace and mercy and peace are yours in abundance from God our Heavenly Father and from his Son, who went to the full length of the cross in order that we might be set free now and forever, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You might remember that there was once in the Gospel of John we're told that Jesus had an extended conversation with a woman in Samaria outside the town at the well, just the two of them, a longer conversation. And at one point, the, the woman tried to draw Jesus into kind of an argument about what was the proper place where God should be worshipped. She said, I know you, you Jews always say that worship has to be at the temple in Jerusalem, but, but my people, my ancestors have taught that, that God should be worshipped here on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And Jesus answered and said, Believe me, a time is coming when you're not going to worship God either here on this mountain or in Jerusalem because the true worshipers of God will worship him in spirit and in truth because those are the kind of worshipers that God is really looking for. There was, though, a time when God said some pretty specific and definite things about the proper place for worship. God set up the system of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, which was a, a portable kind of sanctuary, but wherever that tabernacle was set up, that was to be the house of God and really the only house of God for the Israelites. They were not supposed to be building altars and offering sacrifices all across the land, right? But they were all supposed to come together at God's house to give him their special worship. Later on, of course... David, really Solomon, his son, was, was guided by the Lord to replace that portable sanctuary with a permanent house, a temple located there in Jerusalem where the Israelites continue to worship, those who feared the Lord anyway, for a long time. But eventually that temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, then it was rebuilt 70 years later, and then later it was remodeled, and, and that was the place where Jesus comes to in our verse for tonight, as we look at one of those final stories of Jesus' ministry, his final steps led him to his father's house. And those verses are found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, said Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Yes, Jesus told that Samaritan woman that the time was coming when it wouldn't be so much about the where when it came to worshiping God. It would be about the, the who and the what and the how, spirit and in truth. Right? 
That's the kind of worship that God is looking for. It won't be about only worshiping God in one specific location. And surely that's the world that we live in today. But as you heard in those verses, one more time at least, in that final week of his life, Jesus did go back to that special sanctuary that God had set up there in Jerusalem. You might remember how when he was a child, a 12-year-old, Jesus had expressed how he had longed to be there, right? When, when Joseph and Mary had lost him that one time and, and for some reason failed to look for him in the most obvious place of all, finally they located him there at the temple and, and Jesus said to them, why were you looking for me in all these other places? Didn't you understand that I needed to be here at my father's house? And now he comes back, maybe one of the last times, although he might have come back again a couple days later, but... In that final week of his life, Jesus returns to the temple. And what does he do there? Three different things we'll notice from those verses that I read from Matthew chapter 21. And then we'll notice that not only did Jesus do those three things, but he actually still comes to his temple, his new temple, and does those same three things also for you and me today. What did Jesus do there at the Jerusalem temple? Well, the first thing he did is he cleaned. He entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. God's house badly needed to be cleaned. And we're not really talking so much about the, the debris and filth that must have come from all of the animal selling or even from the animals themselves. That was not the, the more serious kind of dirt that Jesus was encountering. The real dirt was the attitude that led up to all those activities going on there in the temple courts in the first place. The attitude that the worship of God was not nearly as important as making money, that having a, a proper place and atmosphere for worshipful prayer was not nearly as important as commerce, that, that even something as vital and important as the religion of the true God could be turned into merely a tactic, merely a strategy for making a profit. The eyes of Jesus, that was simply intolerable. It had to go. All of it. And so Jesus, for one of the only times in his public ministry, kind of used force to get his way. Used a, a little bit of his divine power and authority, it seems, to, to forcefully drive all of that crowd, all of the money changers and the animals and all the rest, and cleared the temple courts, cleaning the house of God to re-consecrate it for its proper use. Now, the interesting thing about this is that this might not have been the first time and only time that Jesus did this. You read in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke, and they all tell the same story, 
And they all place it in the same place in their gospel narratives, which is right after Palm Sunday, probably on the Monday, right? The very next day, Monday of Holy Week, Jesus is clearing the temple. But when you read the Gospel of John, John also has a story of Jesus cleansing the temple, but he puts it in chapter 2, right at the very beginning of his story of Jesus' ministry. And I think that the simplest and most natural explanation for that difference is that Jesus actually had to do this twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry, but three, three and a half or so years later, those practices that Jesus had put a stop to had come creeping their way right back into place again. And so at the end of his ministry, right before his death, Jesus has to do the whole thing all over again. We'll come back to that thought and, and apply it to ourselves a little bit later. But first we want to notice the second thing that Jesus did on his visit to the temple that day. He healed. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. Still doing miracles of healing, even at the end of his ministry and after so many of these miracles had been recorded and talked about in the Bible, and it's clear in some cases that he did many, many of them at once. When I, I read that verse over again in the text, the, the thought crossed my mind, isn't it almost kind of surprising at this point that there even are any blind and crippled people left in the land of Israel at this point? Wouldn't it seem like, like Jesus has just about healed all of them because he's been doing these miracles for for again, for three whole years of his ministry. And yet it seemed like there were always more, right? And, and in a fallen world, I guess that's the way it is, right? Always more people who are sick, always more people who are in desperate need of, of help and healing. And so Jesus one more time did what he had been doing all throughout his ministry, showing his divine power as the Son of God, showing his love and compassion for, for helpless people who needed his help, silencing the, the criticism of those who might have been inclined to complain and challenge him about his, his work of temple cleansing by showing that he had the right and authority to do exactly that. And yet, in spite of the miracles, they still challenged him anyway, as you heard. That when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? Lord, you have called forth your praise. That's the third thing that Jesus did when he came to his temple. He came to be praised. It wasn't often during his three years of ministry that Jesus openly and plainly called himself the Messiah because that term was likely to be misunderstood or, or give people false hope of something that Jesus was never intending to do. You remember how maybe sometimes when the, the demon-possessed would cry out, You are the Son of God! Jesus would would even silence them and, and force them to be quiet. But this was different. Now he was almost at the very end of his public ministry. Now his time had come. And there was no way that Jesus 
was going to silence those children who could see the miracles that Jesus was performing, who were willing to speak and confess the plain and obvious truth that their parents and their elders would not say, this is the son of David. And of course, that's that messianic term, right? The promise that God had made to King David. You will have a son, a descendant, who will rule forever and sit on the throne for all eternity. And they could tell that this had to be the one. Hosanna to the son of David. There was no way that Jesus was going to tell those believing children to be silent. All the more so because they were fulfilling prophecy by doing it. Psalm number 8 was the one that Jesus quoted there for the teachers of the law. From the lips of children and infants, you have caused yourself to be praised. And finally, what better use could there be for the temple, for God's house, than for God, the Son of God, to be praised by the people who were there? Jesus' final steps led him to his father's house. He went there to clean, he went there to heal, and he went there to be praised. And guess what? Jesus still comes to his new temple, his house today, and he does those same three things for which he came to the temple long ago. And of course, you know that when I talk about his new temple, I'm not talking about anything over in Jerusalem, there's, there's no temple there at all. There's an Islamic shrine right on the hill. And I'm not even talking about this particular building or, or any particular church building. St. Paul says to the Corinthians, Don't you know that God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple? Wherever and whenever God's redeemed people Gather around his word. That is God's house. That is God's temple. You and I really are his temple when we gather. And Jesus therefore comes to you for those same three purposes that he came to his temple long ago. First of all, he comes to clean. Hopefully by the grace of God, you and I have managed to avoid some of the crassest and most obnoxious aspects of the commercialism that were there in God's house in the, the Jerusalem temple long ago. And yet, I can safely say that, that there's a lot of dirt in here. And you know that I'm not referring to the little bits of grit and grime that sometimes pile up in the corners. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about our hearts. Jesus wants his temple to be clean. And of course, that's a big part of what Lent is all about. Letting Jesus point out the dirt, our own greed, our own tendency to put God and his word on the back burner and put earthly and financial kinds of concerns ahead of him. Our own hatreds and our own follies and all of our other sins. Jesus comes to us in his word and his law and he confronts us just as firmly and just as forcefully as he confronted those money changers long ago. He wants to make sure that our hearts are clean. And yet he does it in love. Even though, just as we think maybe he had to do in 
in Jerusalem at the temple, he doesn't only have to do it once. He has to keep coming back and, and confront us with those things over and over and over again. And, and yet always he does it because he loves us. Because he cares about us. He cares about his house, his temple. He wants it to be clean. And yet Jesus doesn't only come to us to clean, that is to, to confront us with our failures to keep the law of God, just as he did on that day long ago, he also comes to heal. To heal us as only he can. To heal us certainly from the, the bumps and bruises that we get sometimes at the hands of other people, the the, the hurtful and cruel words and actions that, that wound us and, and distress us. Jesus, with his word, promises to help us and, and comfort us from those things. But, but more importantly than that, Jesus comes to heal us from our self-inflicted wounds, from our many sins that make us afraid of God, that make us deservedly liable of his punishment. Jesus heals us from those things as, as no one else ever could. Because, of course, that's why he was there, there in Jerusalem. He wasn't there only to, to clean out the temple. He wasn't there only for temple work. He was there for cross work. To feel that unspeakable pain, to, to walk the fearful and horrible path of God's wrath and punishment that should have been ours, taking our place there on the cross, and in exchange, giving us those amazing gifts of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation with God. If it seemed like there was an endless amount of, of sick and disabled people who kept coming to Jesus all throughout his ministry, who, who needed healing that only he could give, how much greater, how much more endless is the line of sinners that come before Jesus and need the help and forgiveness that only he can provide. And even in our own lives, as I said, we have to keep coming back because we need that grace, we need that mercy given and proclaimed to us over and over and over again. We would think that after all of that, that, that he would have enough of us. You would think that we would wear him out with all of our repeated coming. And yet it never happens, does it? His grace is always there, no matter how often we have to come. His grace is always short. His blood covers it all. And when we realize that, when we appreciate from his precious gospel just how thoroughly and completely we have been healed, our reaction is going to be the same as that of the children of Jerusalem long ago. Hosanna to the son of David. When Jesus comes to his temple to clean and to heal, his children will praise him. And so do you and I. You know, sometimes there's a, a danger for us, I think, because of the, the culture we live in, and it rubs off on all of us, right? Um, the, the danger that because we're, we're part of that world and part of that mentality to a degree, that, that we kind of take its standards and approach and apply it to coming here. We apply it to worship a little bit. What I mean is this, that when we come, we, we start asking ourselves these kind of questions, right? Like, 
well, does this style suit my personal taste, right? Or, or what exactly am I going to get out of this? Is this worth the time that I'm going to put into it? And, and all these thoughts come into our minds. And of course, the answer is that what we're coming to do is hear the word of God. Well, then there's an awful lot that we can get out of it, right? But, but finally, I, I wonder if that whole mentality is really the right kind of approach that we should be bringing in the first place. We don't really want to come here with the heart and mentality of a shopper. We come here with the heart and soul of a worshiper. We are God's temple when we gather. And so we come here because this is the time and opportunity for us to honor our God from the heart. The time when, when we can come and close our eyes and block out our other thoughts and with full meaning and intention Take advantage of that awesome opportunity that we have to talk to our God and give him the needs of our own hearts and souls in prayer. And then to open our eyes and open our ears and listen to the message that our wonderful, saving God and Father has for us personally, inspired on the pages of his word. And then having listened to again open our lips and, and open our voices and, and raise them, songs of praise and glory to that God and Savior, where the most important aspect is not the, the high musical quality of the song, but rather it's the heart that gives God glory for the awesome things that he has done. Jesus still comes to his temple. And that temple is you. Every time you gather. He still comes here to clean, he comes to heal, and he comes to be praised. Keep on coming together regularly and often so that Jesus can do what only a Savior can do for you, his holy temple. Amen. The peace of God that surpasses all our understanding will keep and guard your hearts and minds in that true faith in Jesus as your Savior. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to a sermon podcast from Salem Evangelical Lutheran Church. If you have any further questions or would like to learn more about Salem Lutheran and its ministry, please check out our website at www.salemevlutheran.org. Once again, that is www.salemev l-u-t-h-e-r-a-n dot o-r-g. May God bless you today and every day.